0: This is Inside the Writer's Head with Emma Carlson Byrne, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2018 Writer-in-Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer-in-Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the Library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here now is Emma Carlson Byrne.
1: Hello all. I'm Emma Carlson-Byrne, this year's public library writer-in-residence and the host of Inside the Writer's Head. My guest this month is award-winning science and history writer Mary Kay Carson. In her 25 years as a writer of books and articles for young people, Mary Kay has authored over 50 titles and has received many starred reviews from Kirkus, School Library Journal, and Booklist, the 2016 Green Prize for Sustainable Literature for her book Inside Biosphere Two, and the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics 2009 Children's Literature Award for Exploring the Solar System. With her husband, photographer and videographer Tom Yulman, Mary Kay has traveled to Yellowstone, the caves of Kentucky and Texas, the Arizona desert, and NASA to research her books. And she's my friend. When I moved to Cincinnati and I was just getting started in freelancing, Mary Kay offered me many steady, solid pieces of advice. She's unremittingly supportive and a great lunch companion. Mary Kay, I'm so glad you're here to talk. I'm happy to be here. So... Tell us a little bit about how you got into writing history and science books. Your background is in biology, and I know that you are a plant, animal, and nature lover. And in the old days, you were an editor at Super Science Magazine at Scholastic in New York City. How did you transition from magazine editing and a science background to uh, full-time freelance writing?
2: Well, I studied science in college. I studied biology in college and had hoped on, you know, a career of field biology, but that didn't really work out for a number of reasons. And I found myself after graduating from college uh, in the Peace Corps in the Dominican Republic doing fisheries projects, and it was actually there... Um, while I was living someplace that had no telephones and no running water and no really much of anything that I like to write. And I like to write letters. And I started doing some writing uh, for a newsletter in the country. And um, once I left the Peace Corps, combining writing with science seemed like the next step for me. And so I did a, a science writing program
1: at New York University for a little while. And, and how, how many years was that program, Mary Kay?
2: You know, that that program is a year and a half, but I only made it through, I didn't even make it through the first year. I sort of ran out of, ran out of money. Apparently, I never sat down with a pencil and figured out how much it was going to cost to live in New York City and go to New York University. So I just... Dropped down, started looking for a job, and uh, ended up, you know, getting that job at Scholastic. So, so I worked there for a couple of years on Super Science Magazine, and then um, went freelance. So, living in New York City didn't really agree with me anyway. So,
1: yeah, you're somebody who likes trees and and uh, grass and uh, nature around you.
2: Yeah. And if you're going to be a freelancer, uh, New York City is not the place to live. Your freelance dollars will go a lot farther, pretty much any other place on the planet. <laughs>
1: right. Pick, <laughs> pick anywhere else, maybe like Tokyo or something like that.
2: San Francisco, maybe. No. But other than that. Right.
1: Right. Right. <laughs> So you are a nonfiction writer, and last month we talked to um, Linda Leopold-Strauss, who is primarily a fiction writer. So I was looking forward to um, really focusing in on nonfiction in our discussion. Um, that's something that I think um, a lot of people are interested in, but there's not as much information out there for beginning writers um, about writing nonfiction as there is to for writers who are interested in writing fiction. Um and so I was really I was hoping that you could kind of lift the veil on nonfiction writing for kids. And I was hoping that we could start out by talking about research. Now, I know that just saying that word uh, makes everybody fall asleep. But personally, as somebody who writes both fiction and nonfiction, research is my favorite part of writing. I have very fond memories of writing a nonfiction book for kids about climbing Mount Everest, the first uh, people to summit Mount Everest, and getting to read Edmund Hillary's journal, which was just like so interesting. And looking at beautiful old historical photographs of Sherpas climbing, you know, um, ladders made of of um, sticks with crates lashed to their head. And, you know, my job was to look at these pictures, and it was just such a delight. So I don't know if you feel the same way, I suspect that you do. But I was wondering if you could talk to us about the research that you do when you prep for books. How do you keep a handle on the research? It can be kind of like a rabbit hole. What do you do to keep your research both limited and at the same time thorough? How do you access your sources? And what are the challenges of research knowing that you're writing material for a young audience?
2: Well, research is, is what nonfiction writers spend most of their time doing. And I think, you know, you have to be a curious person, right? You have to be a person like yourself talking about reading journals and being interested in how people first climbed Mount Everest. And I mean, I think most people, I mean, really, once you sort of get into the meat or the details of anything, it's actually pretty interesting, you know, and I think that's what's great about kids is that we used to have a saying at, at Super Science Magazine. We had a, a science news section and the joke, the running joke was that everything is is news to a first grader. Totally. Right. So, it's one of the
1: greatest <laughs> pleasures of working with kids. And also I have young kids myself and uh, right. it is it is absolutely a pleasure.
2: Right. So, you know, maybe you say the Wright brothers to a grown-up, and they already have sort of in their head a bunch of ideas about who the Wright brothers were and what they did. But for a kid, it's all brand new. And, you know, the story of two brothers who argued day and night and, you know, tried to fly gliders on beaches in the Carolinas in the middle of the summer wearing three-piece wool suits, you know, is hilarious and interesting. So I think it's I you know, I think it's a lot easier in a lot of ways to write for kids because kids aren't as jaded and haven't already made up their mind that, oh, well, that's something I'm not interested in. Whereas, you know, a lot of grownups will just say, well, I'm not really interested in in aviation. So that's not something I would want to hear about, which really it's just, you know, who doesn't want to hear a story about brothers who fight all the time? So that's part of it. And then also, I think talking with people, especially for science, my go-to resource for science uh, research is to actually talk to actual scientists. And so that's always interesting. You know, kids are interested, have a sense of wonder about the world and how things work. And I think that's something that you can tap into. You know, I think Once you write for kids, especially I think science, I have a lot of friends still from that science writing program who went on to do regular science writing jobs. And you have to really become super specialized because, you know, the research is so complicated. So, you know, some of them cover beats, you know, science journalist beats of like material science only or, or, right. No, I'm serious. Or only like the genetics of cancer, you know? Right. So, (laughs) so it's, so it's nice for me in that, you know, right now I'm juggling a book about tornadoes and one about Mars and one about bringing wildlife to your backyard. So it's nice to be able to have a bunch of different topics all at the same time.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like a lot of what you do is you find the story in anything. You know, you were telling us about the Wright brothers and that's a story about aviation, but it's also a story about brothers and it's a story about beaches and it's a story about clothing. And, you know, the, there's your, the story. the story is in there no matter what, and your job is to find the interesting story and extract it from the material and then present it to children who are just people, after all, like anybody and like a good story, just like adults like a good story. And there's, you know, there's kids or
2: kids are like grownups and that, you know, different kids are different. Some kids, you know, you could sit there and and start to tell them about how an airplane works and that part would fascinate them enough that they would sit there and listen to it or read about it all day. But other kids are engaged by the story. And then once they're involved in the story, maybe they'll tolerate a couple of pages about the four forces of flight, you know, and the physics behind how an airplane flies. So there's, you have to be able to appeal to different kids and different, and different, you know, ways that people learn. But that's kind of a especially in narrative nonfiction, there's a pattern of you engage with story and you build up a reason for information to be needed. And then you hit them with, you know, maybe an info dump What is what we call it of, you know, some some information about the science behind it to help them understand. So that's kind of a general pattern for for writing nonfiction for kids.
1: Which uh, makes a lot of sense. And I think that's something that a lot of people may not have considered, you know, when they encounter these books. So Mary Kay, you take many field research trips, um, which I know because we're friends and I often hear your great stories. Um, and a lot of these trips are to research your award-winning books for this really neat series called Scientists in the Field. Um, This Scientists in the Field series is um, fairly self-explanatory. You go out with scientists in the field and you follow them and shadow them and watch them do their work. And then you explain this work and explain what they're doing in the book to kids. Is that is that about right? That's about right. So I was hoping that you could talk to us a little bit about field research. I mean, most of my research happens at my desk. And although it's interesting, I'm not actually like getting out in the field. So tell us about how field research is different than, you know, desk research and tell us your when you are out there with the scientists, what are your goals as a writer? What is your sort of, you know, your writerly goals? And if you could then tell us one particularly memorable field research experience. And I had to say that it's actually a false question, because what I really want you to tell us is a story I already know that I'm hoping our listeners will know, which is the story of the Bat Cave. Oh, which is one of my favorite stories. So obviously, you can say any story you want, but that is my favorite story, and I'm hoping you'll tell that.
2: So um, when I go out with a scientist, to I, I'm pretty much just there to tag along. So I try. I don't really like it to be something false. Like, you know, I want you to go and show me around your lab. No, I, I want it to be like you're going out to to look for Kila monsters doing telemetry, looking for hila monsters that have been tagged with radio tags. So I want you to tell me when you're going to do that and I'll meet with you and then I'll just go along and tag along. So I prefer something like that as opposed to something set up. So, and I mean, and that's, you know, that's what's fun. And so sometimes it, I mean, it also, it can become a logistical nightmare, say, because for instance, we did a book called The Park Scientist, which was about science projects in three different national parks in Saguaro, in Yellowstone, and in the Great Smoky Mountains. And it was two different science projects in each of the parks. So that meant six different projects. And most of them were all, you know, going on different times of the year. So, you know, you need to be in Saguaro National Park in, uh, you know, in the springtime and then the Smoky Mountains, which was about uh, fireflies in the summer. And, you know, so it doesn't necessarily make it easier, but it makes it more authentic. And I think the more authentic is the point of that your research can be that that's really conveyed in your manuscript. So my goal when I go out with a scientist is not just to Kind of find out what they're doing and how they do it, but also to sort of absorb all of the details of what the scene is like, what smells there are, what sounds there are. Note that all down, and you know it just makes your ends up making your manuscript a lot richer. I know if anybody is writer out there, if you've done that trick, you know where you take different colored highlighters to represent the different senses, right. So all the green, you highlight all the green words, all the green comments or observations that have to do with what you're seeing and a different color for what you're smelling or, you know, you find out that there's a lot of what you see and not really a lot of smells and tastes and sounds. And so it's just a way to be able to add all those things in. And probably one of the most sensory overload experiences I had in doing field research, the one that Emma's referring to. <laughs> is, um, in uh, There's a cave, there's a bat cave in Texas, kind of between San Antonio and Austin called Bracken Bat Cave. And it's the largest, as far as we know, the largest mammal colony on the planet. In the summertime, uh, 20 million mother bats and their pups are sandwiched In the cave, so just every single nook, cranny of wall and ceiling is covered with bats. Oh, my God. Yeah, and um, hundreds in a a square meter, hundreds (gasps) in a square meter, probably 300, 350 in a square meter. And they're all in there together to stay warm, and it's already Texas in the summer, so inside the cave, it's 115, 120 degrees. Oh, my God. And you have to wear you know a headlamp and a hard hat because you're in a cave and then you also have to wear a respirator on your face to uh filter out the the ammonia fumes from all the bat poop and pee the bat guano and you have to wear long sleeves and long Pants because there's like a constant rain of bat poop and pee <laughs> oh, and, uh, and, little, and little mites. Like there's little mites that live on the bats and they like are falling down on you. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then you're wearing, you have to wear kind of, you know, like high boots because um, you're walking through piles of bat guano, bat, you know, bat poop which is not like cow poo. It's not squishy. It's more kind of kind of like sand, loamy sand. And it's moving because it's full of these beetles that live in the bat guano and process and eat the bat guano as well as all of the baby bats that are unfortunate enough to fall off the wall into the ground. They're like swarmed by these beetles. Oh, gosh. They, they leave their little skeletons everywhere, so you're in this cave, you know, all you can see is just the beam of light, right? Right in front of your head. And so you're like moving around and just catching bits of little baby bat skeletons on the floor. And, and then when you turn around to leave, you try to follow your tracks to get out of the cave and and your footprints have all been erased because the soil is moving because it's so full of the beetles. Oh so, my God. We, I, it was. I was very happy to leave. And I'm not a, I'm not really a squeamish. You know, I'm not afraid of snakes and spiders or anything like that. But this was very uncomfortable.
1: And you know, it's funny because we were talking about finding the story, and sometimes you have to dig for the story. And hey, sometimes the story is right in front of you. Sometimes there is no need to find that story. That story has presented itself.
2: Yeah. 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 And the and the uh, and the flip side of it is watching the bats actually come out from the outside of the cave. You know, being outside of the cave on a lovely Texas evening at sunset and watching millions and millions of bats. It takes hours for them all to come out. There's so many of them. It is You know,
1: breathtaking and beautiful. That must be so, so special to be able to see. And that is really one of the lucky things about your job in particular is that you have an excuse to go and see these things. Yeah. um, Yeah. You know, in the name of your work, which is like a double benefit. Yeah. And see things that you otherwise just
2: would never have seen. We went to see the Smoky Mountains. They have a synchronous firefly, which means that they all flash. They flash off and on um, at the same time, like a Christmas light, and so it's completely dark, and then and then they flash on, and then it's dark, and they flash on, and these these are whole entire little hillsides. You know how the Smoky Mountains is like just like a carpet of hillsides, yes, and you see whole hillsides flashing off and on at the same time, so. Yeah, so uh, we've gotten to see some really amazing
1: things. I mean, that is truly incredible to be able to go and see those things. And often with you, you have Tom Yulman, your husband, who is um, a well-known photographer and videographer and also your collaborator on many of your books. And I, I know Tom also, and he's an incredibly talented photographer. And you guys are very lucky to have that partnership. Can you talk to us a little bit about collaborating with a photographer for writers who are interested in how this process works? Can you talk to us about how, you know, you, the writer and the photographer will work together to produce a text. And then, also for listeners who might not be familiar with how this works, can you explain the difference between collaborating with a photographer at the start? You know, in a sense, this person would function as sort of you know like a uh, as a partner, as opposed to another process in which you would submit text to an editor and then later on, photos would be chosen by a press, usually by an image researcher, or else your book would often be illustrated. But can you you know describe that for readers or for listeners who are not necessarily familiar with the difference between those those two processes?
2: I think it's pretty. I don't think it's really all that common. At least I I know a lot of nonfiction writers and a lot of nonfiction science writers. It's not really that common to actually collaborate with someone. It's almost more, I think, how people do things with magazine articles, you know, that a writer and a photographer would go someplace together and sort of see what they can find. And then they end up making a story out of you know, collectively, what they find. And that's more how Tom and I work. And I don't, you know, really control what he shoots. I know that he's gonna shoot what looks the best, you know, literally find whatever angles are interesting. I mean, he can walk into what looks like a sterile workplace and find interesting angles and objects. I remember, you know, we were in a guy's office once who collars bears in Yellowstone. And, you know, we're just there to do some, inter- I was just there to do some interviewing and he had a bunch of chewed up collars that the, had ended up in the bear's den over the winter. <laughs> yeah. come and, you know, it was like a dog that had, <laughs> had off. and Tom ended up taking all these portraits of the guy looking um, with the collars framing him. Do you know what I'm saying? So it was like, he can find interesting angles with, with, you know, anything. And I know he's going to find the best pictures. And so, you know, I don't, you know, besides the fact of, well, yeah, these people are going to be in the book. So make sure you have pictures of them. Other than that, he pretty much does his own thing. And then it's up to him to choose the 50 or 65 pictures that get sent in, you know, to the art director with the book. He has his own separate contract, just like an illustrator on a picture book would have. And the more usual way is often, at least these days, with ever shrinking budgets on nonfiction books, is that the author is responsible for providing and or obtaining the the, the photos. But um, that's more photo research, or I know a lot of people on the Scientists in the Field series maybe do a field trip and hire a photographer, you know, for a couple of days and then just take whatever they shoot and then they decide, you know, what to turn in. So that's more sort of photo I, you know, it's really pretty much photo research, photo curating. And then the other way a lot of nonfiction books are done is you, you turn in you turn in what you've written and then the photo researchers or the or the art department at the publishing house obtains the photos or the illustrations sometimes or sometimes some of both and then um, as an author you're often called on as a subject matter expert to you know check over the images and the illustrations and you know make sure that it's actually a it's actually a space suit that was worn um, by an astronaut not by somebody in a movie or uh
1: <laughs> even if it doesn't look as good
2: yes or my the bane of my existence or you know all the people who do the illustrations and, you know, label the layers of the sun and, you know, put the arrow for the Corona pointing to the center of the sun, you know, just like all that kind of stuff. So they, they rely on you to actually know if it's right. So. Right. It varies. Yeah.
1: So, Let's switch gears slightly. A unique aspect of talking with you, Mary Kay, is that you have that rare thing, which is that you are a full time working writer. This is your day job, it's your only job, and it is how you pay the rent. And you have been very successful at it for a number of years. I think that the life of a working writer is interesting to a lot of people. Writing can be very difficult to. You can be very hard to make writing your profession. It can be hard to make enough money and to be marketable. And so talk to us a little bit about the life of a full-time writer. Do you recommend it to all those people out there who are considering it or who would like this to be their job? Um, Give us a pro-con list from somebody who really knows. That's you.
2: Well, you are somebody who really knows as well, Emma, and that's... We're talking about that this is interesting that you are the writer in residence because I consider you very much to be a working writer, not necessarily, you know, someone who writes in his or her free time or, you know, has produced, you know, two novels over their career. And if people in the library look around the library. Um, most of those books were probably written by working writers uh, as opposed to novelists or, you know, not really sure what, but <laughs> so it's, I mean, writing is a skill, right? It's a skill just like, just like anything else, just like being able to clean teeth or fix cars or do anything else, writing is a skill. And so there's lots of room in the world for technical writers and grant writers and writers of kids' books that are nonfiction and how to books and reference books and all kinds of things. So, as far as a pro con list, you know, I think it's one of those things that it's hard for me to say because. I don't, I mean, I haven't really done anything else. And so for me, it's worked out. And I like that I'm always moving on from one project to the other. So no matter how much maybe I'm tight, I get tired of reading about tornadoes. I know that this project will end and I'll move on to something else. And I always have a list of things in the back of my head that I think would make good books. And when I, you know, when I'm going around, you know, all the time you're sort of on the lookout for good ideas. And I was listening to a play uh, the other day and I was and part of the story in the play made me think, oh, that would make a really good, that would make a really good children's book. Right. And I'm sure you have the same experience. It's as far and so it suits me temperamentally in that you're always moving on to other things. There's always new things to learn. It's difficult because you know, you are you are your boss, you are your secretary, you are your tax accountant, you are your scheduler, you're your driver, you're your everything. And so sometimes it can feel kind of lonely. And uh, you don't have anyone to blame but yourself when things go wrong. So you, can't, you know, the thing I missed the most, I think, when I left Scholastic was not having an IT guy that I could call. You know, oh my God, I'd give anything to have like an IT person I could call some days and say, "Oh, come and fix my computer problem." And you know, the money is not steady, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. So <laughs> if you're a person who craves stability I would say it's not the job for you but if you're someone who is easily easily gets tired of something and is always sort of has that that nagging feeling of wow is this really the best is this really as good as it can be then then it is good because you make your own path you know so I don't know
1: Yeah. Well, and I obviously completely agree. (laughs) It's living a similar kind of life. And, you know, that leads us into the next question, which is what are you working on now? And what are you looking forward to working on, you know, in the near future? What are some future goals you might have for yourself? And uh, what interesting projects do you have lined up?
2: Well, one thing about writing books um, in particular, as opposed to magazine articles or other kind of projects, is that they're, they come and go and they always are in different stages, right? So I have books that I've written and have been on people's desks for months. And so then they come back at different stages for editing or to have things fact-checked. So I have a number of books. Um, I have a book about weird animals that you know, I'm working on we've got some problems about whether Suriname toads are actually frogs or toads and things like that <laughs> and uh and I have a tornado a book about a tornado scientist book for a scientist in the field that's about this amazing woman at Purdue, Robin Tanamachi, who's this amazing um tornado scientist that is being edited, so I'm sure it'll come back and I'm also starting a big project that's about bringing wildlife to your backyard, how to save animals right in your own backyard by providing homes and food and habitat for them. That sounds great. Yeah. So that's I get to spend, we get to spend the spring and summer making hummingbird feeders and toad abodes and lizard condos. So, um, So those are a couple of the projects we've got going on. And as far as uh, pie in the sky projects, I've been trying to write some picture books, which I haven't had much success selling. But I yet have, uh, yet, but I have recently signed with an agent, so hopefully that will help. And I'm really hoping to see some of those in print with gorgeous illustrations by a fantastic artist sometime in
1: my life. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. I know. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, that sounds great. We'll see what happens. <laughs> so Mary Kay, I have a final question for you. You have six words, no more. Give a piece of advice to all the aspiring writers out there. In six words, no more. You can use less. Okay.
2: Am I allowed to explain it before I say the six words or not? Yes,
1: by all means. Okay.
2: When we were talking about freelancing and uh, the pros and cons and that everything depends on you, I feel like one benefit benefit or curse maybe of being a freelance writer is that you really, to be... to, to productively use your time and to actually have progress and make progress. I know this is something especially new writers start uh, struggle with a lot is trying to make time for writing and trying to feel like they are making progress with their writing is that you have to really um, learn how you as a person work and what motivates you and be honest with yourself about that. No judgment. If if you want to, you know, if you want to write a best selling book, then you know, probably um, medieval poetry is not what you
1: should. Try no, wait, hold on, hold on. My medieval poetry manuscript is almost <laughs> finished. So just think before you speak. Go ahead.
2: And so, my uh, six words of advice
1: is: know why you write use that know why you write use that that is brilliant it's that's very philosophical also mary kay i, I think i need to write it down myself and ponder that a little bit
2: writer know thyself
1: <laughs> it's even more philosophical and with thy in it which is great mary kay i am so glad that we could talk today Next month, we'll have Terry Robida on. She's a senior editor at American Girl Publishing, and she'll talk about creating books for the toy empire. For the Cincinnati Public Library, I'm Writer-in-Residence Emma Carlson Byrne. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Writer's Head.
0: Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. You can meet Emma at various events throughout the year or at open office hours on the third Saturday of every month from 10 a.m. until noon at the Coryville Branch Library. Learn more by visiting cincinnatilibrary.org slash residence Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes and leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you for listening.